0: Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. Today's date is March 29, 2020, and this is an audiobook of the Manifesto of the Communist Party, also known as the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Before we get into the audiobook, I want to ask you quickly, just hit the like button, share, subscribe, comment. All of that helps boost this channel and this video in the YouTube algorithm or wherever you're watching it. You can also find Socialism for All at Facebook.com slash Socialism for All. Also on Patreon at Patreon.com slash socialism for all. And I want to mention that you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. All of those contributions help support this work and help us focus on the work without worrying about the money. So speaking of the work, let's get into the audiobook. This is Manifesto of the Communist Party by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, published February 1848. The work was written in late 1847. The source is Marx Engels' Selected Works, Volume 1, Progress Publishers, Moscow, 1969. Translated by Samuel Moore in cooperation with Friedrich Engels, 1888. Transcribed by Zodiac and Brian Baggins. Proofed and corrected against the 1888 English edition by Andy Blunden, 2004. And copyleft Marxists' internet archive at marxists.org, 1987, 2000, 2010. Thanks to marxist.org for making this PDF available. I want to mention also before we get into the actual body text that this edition has a number of prefaces and an editorial introduction. I'm not going to read those right now. Um, They are valuable documents written by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels um, as prefaces to various editions from the 1870s to the 1890s of as this manifesto was translated into different European languages, they would comment. And then later after Marx died, Engels alone would comment. I've recorded those separately in a file I believe called prefaces to the communist manifesto. Those are valuable in and of themselves. I just wanted to do them separately. So please go look up that video if you're interested. Now let's get into the manifesto of the communist party. Section one bourgeois and proletarians. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended, either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large, or in the common ruin of the contending classes. In the earlier epics of history, we find almost everywhere a complicated arrangement of society into various orders, a manifold gradation of social rank. In ancient Rome, we have patricians, knights, plebeians, slaves. In the Middle Ages, feudal lords, vassals, guild masters, journeymen, apprentices, serf. In almost all of these classes, again, subordinate gradations. The modern bourgeois society that has sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has not done away with class antagonisms. It has but established new classes, new conditions of oppression, new forms of struggle in place of the old ones. Our epic, The Epic of the Bourgeoisie, possesses however this distinct feature. It has simplified class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps into two great classes directly facing each other bourgeoisie and proletariat from the serfs of the middle ages sprang the chartered burghers of the earliest towns from these burgesses the first elements of the bourgeoisie were developed the discovery of america the rounding of the cape opened up fresh ground for the rising bourgeoisie the east indian and chinese markets the colonization of america trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange and in commodities generally gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never before known, and thereby to the revolutionary element in the tottering feudal society, a rapid development. The feudal system of industry, in which industrial production was monopolized by closed guilds, now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of the new markets. The manufacturing system took its place. The guild masters were pushed on one side by the manufacturing middle class. Division of labor between the different corporate guilds vanished in the face of division of labor in each single workshop. Meanwhile, the markets kept ever growing, the demand ever rising. Even manufacturer no longer sufficed. Thereupon, steam and machinery revolutionized industrial production. The place of manufacture was taken by the giant modern industry the place of the industrial middle class by industrial millionaires, the leaders of the whole industrial armies, the modern bourgeois. Modern industry has established the world market for which the discovery of America paved the way. This market has given an immense development to commerce, to navigation, to communication by land. This development has, in its turn, reacted on the extension of industry, and in proportion as industry, commerce, navigation, railways extended in the same proportion the bourgeoisie developed, increased its capital and pushed into the background every class handed down from the middle ages we see therefore how the modern bourgeoisie is itself the product of a long course of development of a series of revolutions in the modes of production and exchange each step in the development of the bourgeoisie was accompanied by a corresponding political advance of that class an oppressed class under the sway of the feudal nobility, an armed and self governing association in the medieval commune, here independent urban republic, as in Italy and Germany, there taxable third estate of the monarchy, as in France. Afterwards, in the period of manufacturing proper, serving either the semi-feudal or the absolute monarchy as a counterpoise against the nobility, and in fact cornerstone of the great monarchies in general, the bourgeoisie has at last since the establishment of modern industry and of the world market conquered for itself in the modern representative state exclusive political sway. The executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie, historically, has played a most revolutionary part. The bourgeoisie, wherever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his, quote, natural superiors, and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest, than callous cash payment. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of philistine sentimentalism, in the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value, and in place of the numberless, indefeasible chartered freedoms, has set up that single, unconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word, for exploitation veiled by religious and political illusions it has substituted naked shameless direct brutal exploitation the bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe it has converted the physician the lawyer the priest the poet the man of science into its paid wage laborers the bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation The bourgeoisie has disclosed how it came to pass that the brutal display of vigor in the Middle Ages, which reactionaries so much admire, found its fitting complement in the most slothful indolence. It has been the first to show what man's activity can bring about. It has accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expeditions that put in the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production, and thereby the relations of production, and with them, the whole relations of society. Conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was, on the contrary, the first condition of existence for all earlier industrial classes. Constant revolutionizing of production uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguish the bourgeois epic from all previous ones. All fixed, fast-frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new-formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. The bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. To the great chagrin of reactionists, it has drawn from under the feet of industry, the national ground on which it stood all old established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. They are dislodged by new industries, whose introduction becomes a life and death question for all civilized nations, by industries that no longer work up indigenous raw material, but raw material drawn from the remotest zones. Industries whose products are consumed not only at home, but in every quarter of the globe. In place of the old wants, satisfied by the production of the country, we find nuance, requiring, for their satisfaction, the products of distant lands and climes. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations. And, as in material, so also in intellectual production. The intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness becomes more and more impossible, and from the numerous national and local literatures, there arises a world literature. The bourgeoisie, by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all, even the most barbarian nations, into civilization. The cheap prices of commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the barbarians' intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It compels all nations, on pain of extinction, to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, i.e., to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. The bourgeoisie has subjected the country to the rule of the towns. It has created enormous cities, has greatly increased the urban population as compared with the rural and has thus rescued a considerable part of the population from the idiocy of rural life just as it has made the country dependent on the towns so it has made the barbarian and semi-barbarian countries dependent on the civilized ones nations of peasants on nations of bourgeois the east on the west the bourgeoisie keeps more and more doing away with the scattered state of the population of the means of production and of property It has agglomerated population, centralized the means of production, and has concentrated property in a few hands. The necessary consequence of this was political centralization. Independent, or but loosely connected provinces, with separate interests, laws, governments, and systems of taxation, became lumped together into one nation, with one government, one code of laws, one national class interest, one frontier, and one customs tariff. The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. Subjection of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing of whole continents for cultivation, canalization of rivers whole populations conjured out of the ground what earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labor we see then the means of production and of exchange on whose foundation the bourgeoisie built itself up were generated in feudal society at a certain stage in the development of these means of production and of exchange the conditions under which feudal society produced and exchanged the feudal organization of agriculture and manufacturing industry. In one word, the feudal relations of property became no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces. They became so many fetters. They had to be burst asunder. They were burst asunder into their place, stepped free competition, accompanied by a social and political constitution adapted in it and the economic and political sway of the bourgeois class. A similar movement is going on before our own eyes. Modern bourgeois society, with its relations of production, of exchange, and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange, is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. For many a decade past, the history of industry and commerce is but the history of the revolt of modern productive forces against modern conditions of production, against the property relations that are the conditions for the existence of the bourgeois and of its rule. It is enough to mention the commercial crises that by their periodical return put the existence of the entire bourgeois society on its trial, each time more threateningly. In these crises, a great part of not only the existing products, but also of the previously creative productive forces are periodically destroyed. In these crises, there breaks out an epidemic that in all earlier epochs, would have seemed an absurdity, the epidemic of overproduction. Society suddenly finds itself put back into a state of momentary barbarism. It appears as if a famine, a universal war of devastation had cut off the supply of every means of subsistence. Industry and commerce seem to have been destroyed. And why? Because there is too much civilization, too much means of subsistence too much industry, too much commerce. The productive forces at the disposal of society no longer tend to further the development of the conditions of bourgeois property. On the contrary, they have become too powerful for these conditions by which they are fettered. And so soon as they can overcome these fetters, they bring disorder into the whole of bourgeois society, endanger the existence of bourgeois property. The conditions of bourgeois society are too narrow to comprise the wealth created by them. And how does the bourgeoisie get over these crises? On the one hand, by enforced destruction of a mass of productive forces. On the other, by the conquest of new markets, and by the more thorough exploitation of the old ones. That is to say, by paving the way for more extensive and more destructive crises, and by diminishing the means whereby crises are prevented. The weapons with which the bourgeoisie felled feudalism to the ground are now turned against the bourgeoisie itself. But not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapons that bring death to itself, it has also called into existence the men who are to wield these weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians. In proportion as the bourgeoisie, i.e. capital, is developed, in the same proportion is the proletariat, the modern working class developed, a class of laborers who live only so long as they find work, and who find work only so long as their labor increases capital. These laborers, who must sell themselves piecemeal, are a commodity, like every other article of commerce, and are consequently exposed to all the vicissitudes of competition, to all the fluctuations of the market. Owing to the extensive use of machinery, and to the division of labor, the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character, and consequently all charm for the workmen. He becomes an appendage of the machine, and it is only the most simple, most monotonous, and most easily required knack that is required of him. Hence, the cost of production of a workman is restricted almost entirely to the means of subsistence that he requires for maintenance, and for the propagation of his race. But the price of a commodity, and therefore also of labor, is equal to its cost of production. In proportion, therefore, as the repulsiveness of the work increases, the wage decreases. Nay, more, in proportion as the use of machinery and division of labor increases, in the same proportion the burden of toil also increases, whether by prolongation of the working hours, by the increase of the work exacted in a given time, or by increased speed of machinery, etc. Modern industry has converted the little workshop of the patriarchal master into the great factory of the industrial capitalist. Masses of laborers crowded into the factory are organized like soldiers, as privates of the industrial army, they are placed under the command of a perfect hierarchy of officers and sergeants. Not only are they slaves of the bourgeois class and of the bourgeois state, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine, by the overlooker, and above all, by the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself. The more openly this despotism proclaims gain to be its end and aim, the more petty, the more hateful, and the more embittering it is the less the skill and exertion of strength implied in manual labor. In other words, the more modern industry becomes developed. The more is the labor of men superseded by that of women. Differences of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity for the working class. All are instruments of labor, more or less expensive to use, according to their age and sex. No sooner is the exploitation of the laborer by the manufacturer, so far at an end that he receives his wages in cash, than he is set upon by the other portions of the bourgeoisie the landlord, the shopkeeper, the pawnbroker, etc. The lower strata of the middle class the small tradespeople, shopkeepers, and retired tradesmen generally, the handicraftsmen and peasants. All these sink gradually into the proletariat, partly because their diminutive capital does not suffice for the scale on which modern industry is carried on and is swamped in the competition with the large capitalists, partly because their specialized skill is rendered worthless by new methods of production. Thus the proletariat is recruited from all classes of the population. The proletariat goes through various stages of development. With its birth begins its struggle with the bourgeoisie at first the contest is carried on by individual laborers then by the workpeople of a factory then by the operative of one trade in one locality against the individual bourgeois who directly exploits them they direct their attacks not against the bourgeois conditions of production but against the instruments of production themselves they destroy imported wares that compete with their labor they smash to pieces machinery they set factories ablaze They seek to restore by force the vanquished status of the workmen of the Middle Ages. At this stage, the laborers still form an incoherent mass scattered over the whole country and broken up by their mutual competition if anywhere they unite to form more compact bodies this is not yet the consequence of their own active union but of the union of the bourgeoisie which class in order to attain its own political ends is compelled to set the whole proletariat in motion and is moreover yet for a time able to do so at this stage therefore the proletarians do not fight their enemies but the enemies of their enemies The remnants of absolute monarchy, the landowners, the non-industrial bourgeois, the petty bourgeois. Thus, the whole historical movement is concentrated in the hands of the bourgeoisie. Every victory so obtained is a victory for the bourgeoisie. But with the development of industry, the proletariat not only increases in number, it becomes concentrated in greater masses. Its strength grows, and it feels that strength more. The various interests and conditions of life within the ranks of the proletariat are more and more equalized in proportion as machinery obliterates all distinctions of labor and nearly everywhere reduces wages to the same low level. The growing competition among the bourgeois and the resulting commercial crises make the wages of the workers ever more fluctuating. The increasing improvement of machinery, ever more rapidly developing, makes their livelihood more and more precarious. The collisions between individual workmen and individual bourgeois take more and more the character of collisions between two classes. Thereupon, the workers begin to form combination, trades unions, against the bourgeois. They club together in order to keep up the rate of wages. They found permanent associations in order to make provision beforehand for these occasional revolts. Here and there, the contest breaks out into riots. Now and then, the workers are victorious, but only for a time. The real fruit of their battles lies not in the immediate result, but in the ever-expanding union of the workers. This union is helped on by the improved means of communication that are created by modern industry, and that place the workers of different localities in contact with one another. It was just this contact that was needed to centralize the numerous local struggles, all of the same character, into one national struggle between classes. But every class struggle is a political struggle, and that union, to attain which the burghers of the Middle Ages, with their miserable highways, required centuries, the modern proletarian, thanks to railways, achieve in a few years. This organization of the proletarians into a class, and consequently into a political party, is continually being upset again by the competition between the workers themselves but it ever rises up again, stronger, firmer, mightier. It compels legislative recognition of particular interests of the workers by taking advantage of the divisions among the bourgeoisie itself. Thus, the 10 hours bill in England was carried. Altogether, collisions between the classes of the old society further, in many ways, the course of development of the proletariat. The bourgeoisie finds itself involved in a constant battle, at first with the aristocracy, later on with those portions of the bourgeoisie itself whose interests have become antagonistic to the progress of industry, at all time with the bourgeoisie of foreign countries. In all these battles, it sees itself compelled to appeal to the proletariat, to ask for help, and thus to drag it into the political arena. The bourgeoisie itself, therefore, supplies the proletariat with its own elements of political and general education. In other words, it furnishes the proletariat with weapons for fighting the bourgeoisie. Further, as we have already seen, entire sections of the ruling class are, by the advance of industry, precipitated into the proletariat, or are at least threatened in their conditions of existence. These also supply the proletariat with fresh elements of enlightenment and progress. Finally, in times when the class struggle nears the decisive hour, the progress of dissolution going on within the ruling class, in fact within the whole range of old society, assumes such a violent, glaring character that a small section of the ruling class cuts itself adrift and joins the revolutionary class, the class that holds the future in its hands. Just as, therefore, at an earlier period, a section of the nobility went over to the bourgeoisie, so now a portion of the bourgeoisie goes over to the proletariat, and in particular, a portion of the bourgeois ideologists, who have raised themselves to the level of comprehending theoretically the historical movement as a whole." Of all the classes that stand face to face with the bourgeoisie today, the proletariat alone is a really revolutionary class. The other classes decay and finally disappear in the face of modern industry. The proletariat is its special and essential product. The lower middle class, the small manufacturer, the shopkeeper, the artisan, the peasant, all these fight against the bourgeoisie to save from extinction their existence as fractions of the middle class. They are therefore not revolutionary but conservative, nay more, they are reactionary, for they try to roll back the wheel of history. If by chance they are revolutionary, they are so only in view of their impending transfer into the proletariat. They thus defend not their present but their future interests they desert their own standpoint to place themselves at that of the proletariat. The, quote, dangerous class, lumpen proletariat, the social scum, that passively rotting mass thrown off by the lowest layers of the old society may here and there be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, prepare it far more for the part of a bribed tool of reactionary intrigue. In the condition of the proletariat, Those of old society at large are already virtually swamped. The proletarian is without property. His relation to his wife and children has no longer anything in common with the bourgeois family relations. Modern industry labor, modern subjection to capital, the same in England as in France, in America as in Germany, has stripped him of every trace of national character. Law, morality, religion are to him so many bourgeois prejudices, behind which lurk in ambush just as many bourgeois interests all the preceding classes that got the upper hand sought to fortify their already acquired status by subjecting society at large to their conditions of appropriation the proletarians cannot become masters of the productive forces of society except by abolishing their own previous mode of appropriation and thereby also every other previous mode of appropriation they have nothing of their own to secure and to fortify their mission is to destroy all previous securities for and insurances of individual property all previous historical movements were movements of minorities or in the interest of minorities the proletarian movement is the self-conscious independent movement of the immense majority in the interest of the immense majority The proletariat, the lowest stratum of our present society, cannot stir, cannot raise itself up without the whole superincumbent strata of official society being sprung into the air. Though not in substance, yet in form, the struggle of the proletariat with the bourgeoisie is at first a national struggle. The proletariat of each country must, of course, first of all, settle matters with its own bourgeoisie. In depicting the most general phases of the development of the proletariat, we trace the more or less veiled civil war raging within existing society up to the point where that war breaks out into open revolution and where the violent overthrow of the bourgeoisie lays the foundation for the sway of the proletariat. Hitherto, every form of society has been based, as we have already seen, on the antagonism of oppressing and oppressed classes. But in order to oppress a class, certain conditions must be assured to it under which it can at least continue its slavish existence the serf in the period of serfdom raised himself to membership in the commune just as the petty bourgeois under the yoke of the feudal absolutism managed to develop into a bourgeois the modern laborer on the contrary instead of rising with the process of industry sinks deeper and deeper below the conditions of the existence of his own class he becomes a pauper and pauperism develops more rapidly than population and wealth. And here it becomes evident that the bourgeoisie is unfit any longer to be the ruling class in society and to impose its conditions of existence upon society as an overriding law. It is unfit to rule because it is incompetent to assure an existence to its slave within his slavery, because it cannot help letting him sink into such a state that it has to feed him instead of being fed by him, Society can no longer live under this bourgeoisie, in other words, its existence is no longer compatible with society. The essential conditions for the existence and for the sway of the bourgeois class is the formation and augmentation of capital. The condition for capital is wage labor. Wage labor rests exclusively on competition between the laborers. The advance of industry whose involuntary promoter is the bourgeoisie replaces the isolation of the laborers due to competition by the revolutionary combination due to association the development of modern industry therefore cuts from under its feet the very foundation on which the bourgeoisie produces and appropriates products what the bourgeoisie therefore produces above all are its own grave diggers its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable section 2 proletarians and communists in what relation do the communists stand to the proletarians as a whole the communists do not form a separate party opposed to the other working class parties they have no interests separate and apart from those of the proletariat as a whole they do not set up any sectarian principles of their own by which to shape and mold the proletarian movement the Communists are distinguished from the other working class parties by this only. 1. In the national struggles of the proletarians of the different countries, they point out and bring to the front the common interests of the entire proletariat, independently of any nationality. 2. In the various stages of development which the struggle of the working class against the bourgeoisie has to pass through, they always and everywhere represent the interests of the movement as a whole. The Communists, therefore, are on the one hand practically the most advanced and resolute section of the working class parties of every country. That section which pushes forward all others. On the other hand, theoretically, they have over the great mass of the proletariat the advantage of clearly understanding the line of march, the conditions, and the ultimate general results of the proletarian movement. The immediate aim of the Communists is the same as that of all other proletarian parties formation of the proletariat into a class overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy conquest of political power by the proletariat the theoretical conclusions of the communists are in no way based on principles or ideas that have been invented or discovered by this or that would-be universal reformer they merely express in general terms actual relations springing from an existing class struggle from a historical movement going on under our very eyes The abolition of existing property relations is not at all a distinctive feature of communism all property relations in the past have continually been subject to historical change consequent upon the change in historical conditions the french revolution for example abolished feudal property in favor of bourgeois property the distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally but the abolition of bourgeois property But modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonisms, on the exploitation of the many by the few. In this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. We communists have been reproached with the desire of abolishing the right of personally acquiring property as the fruit of a man's own labor, which property is alleged to be the groundwork of all personal freedom, activity, and independence. Hard won, self-acquired, self-earned property. Do you mean the property of petty artisan and of the small peasant, a form of property that preceded the bourgeois form? There is no need to abolish that. The development of industry has, to a great extent, already destroyed it and is still destroying it daily. Or do you mean the modern bourgeois private property? But does wage labor create any property for the laborer? Not a bit. It creates capital, i.e., that kind of property which exploits wage labor and which cannot increase except upon condition of begetting a new supply of wage labor for fresh exploitation. Property, in its present form, is based on the antagonism of capital and wage labor. Let us examine both sides of this antagonism. To be a capitalist is to have not only a purely personal, but a social status in production. Capital is a collective product, and only by the united action of many members, nay, in the last resort, only by the united action of all members of society can it be set in motion. Capital is therefore not only personal, it is a social power. When, therefore, capital is converted into common property, into the property of all members of society, personal property is not thereby transformed into social property. It is only the social character of the property that is changed. It loses its class character. Let us now take wage labor. The average price of wage labor is the minimum wage, i.e., that quantum of the means of subsistence which is absolutely requisite to keep the laborer in bare existence as a laborer what therefore the wage laborer appropriates by means of his labor merely suffices to prolong and reproduce a bare existence we by no means intend to abolish this personal appropriation of the products of labor an appropriation that is made for the maintenance and reproduction of human life and that leaves no surplus wherewith to command the labor of others all that we want to do away with is the miserable character of this appropriation under which the laborer lives merely to increase capital and is allowed to live only insofar as the interest of the ruling class requires it. In bourgeois society, living labor is but a means to increase accumulated labor. In communist society, accumulated labor is but a means to widen, to enrich, to promote the existence of the laborer. In bourgeois society, therefore, the past dominates the present. In communist society, the present dominates the past. In bourgeois society, capital is independent and has individuality while the living person is dependent and has no individuality. And the abolition of this state of things is called by the bourgeois abolition of individuality and freedom. And rightly so, the abolition of bourgeois individuality, bourgeois independence and bourgeois freedom is undoubtedly aimed at. By freedom is meant under the present bourgeois conditions of production, free trade, free selling and buying. But if selling and buying disappears, free selling and buying disappears also this talk about free selling and buying and all the other quote brave words of our bourgeois about freedom in general have a meaning if any only in contrast with restricted selling and buying with the fettered traders of the middle ages but have no meaning when opposed to the communistic abolition of buying and selling of the bourgeois conditions of production and of the bourgeoisie itself you are horrified at our intending to do away with private property But in your existing society, private property is already done away with for nine-tenths of the population. Its existence for the few is solely due to its non-existence in the hand of those nine-tenths. You reproach us, therefore, with intending to do away with a form of property, the necessary condition for whose existence is the non-existence of any property for the immense majority of society. In one word, you reproach us with intending to do away with your property. Precisely so, that is just what we intend. From the moment when labor can no longer be converted into capital, money, or rent into a social power capable of being monopolized, i.e. from the moment when individual property can no longer be transformed into bourgeois property, into capital, from that moment, you say, individuality vanishes. You must therefore confess that by individual, you mean no other person than the bourgeois, than the middle class owner of property. This person must indeed be swept out of the way and made impossible. Communism deprives no man of the power to appropriate the products of society. All that it does is to deprive him of the power to subjugate the labor of others by means of such appropriations. It has been objected that upon the abolition of private property, all work will cease and universal laziness will overtake us. According to this, bourgeois society ought long ago to have gone to the dogs through sheer idleness, for those of its members who work acquire nothing and those who acquire anything do not work. The whole of this objection is but another expression of the tautology that there can be no longer any wage labor when there is no longer any capital all objections urged against the communistic mode of producing and appropriating material products have in the same way been urged against the communistic mode of producing and appropriating intellectual products just as to the bourgeois the disappearance of class property is the disappearance of production itself so the disappearance of class culture is to him identical with the disappearance of all culture. That culture, the loss of which he laments, is, for the enormous majority, a mere training to act as a machine. But don't wrangle with us so long as you apply to our intended abolition of bourgeois property the standard of your bourgeois notions of freedom, culture, law, etc., Your very ideas are but the outgrowth of the conditions of your bourgeois production and bourgeois property, just as your jurisprudence is but the will of your class made into a law for all, a will whose essential character and direction are determined by the economic conditions of the existence of your class. The selfish misconception that induces you to transform into eternal laws of nature and of reason, the social forms springing from your present mode of production and form of property historical relations that rise and disappear in the progress of production, this misconception you share with every ruling class that has preceded you. What you see clearly in the case of ancient property, what you admit in the case of feudal property, you are of course forbidden to admit in the case of your own bourgeois form of property. Abolition of the family, even the most radical flare up at this infamous proposal of the communists. On what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family, based? On capital, on private gain. In its completely developed form, this family exists only among the bourgeoisie. But this state of things finds its complement in the practical absence of the family among the proletarians and in public prostitution. The bourgeois family will vanish as a matter of course when its complement vanishes, and both will vanish with the vanishing of capital. Do you charge us with wanting to stop the exploitation of children by their parents? To this crime, we plead guilty. But you say, we destroy the most hallowed of relations when we replace home education by social. And your education, is that not also social and determined by the social conditions under which you educate, by the intervention direct or indirect of society, by means of schools, etc.? The communists have not invented the intervention of society in education. They do but seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. The bourgeois claptrap about the family and education about the hallowed co-relation of parents and child becomes all the more disgusting the more by the action of modern industry all the family ties among the proletarians are torn asunder and their children transformed into simple articles of commerce and instruments of labor but you communists would introduce community of women screams the bourgeoisie in chorus. The bourgeois sees his wife a mere instrument of production. He hears that the instruments of production are to be exploited in common, and naturally can come to no other conclusion that the lot of being common to all will likewise fall to the women. He has not even a suspicion that the real point aimed at is to do away with the status of women as mere instruments of production. For the rest, nothing is more ridiculous than the virtuous indignation of our bourgeois at the community of women which they pretend is to be openly and officially established by the communists. The communists have no need to introduce community of women. It has existed almost from time immemorial. Our bourgeois, not content with having wives and daughters of their proletarians at their disposal, not to speak of common prostitutes, take the greatest pleasure in seducing each other's wives. Bourgeois marriage is, in reality, a system of wives in common, and thus, at the most, what the communists might possibly be reproached with is that they desire to introduce, in substitution, for a hypocritically concealed and openly legalized community of women. For the rest, it is self-evident that the abolition of the present system of production must bring with it the abolition of the community of women springing from that system, i.e. of prostitution, both public and private." The communists are further reproached with desiring to abolish countries and nationality the working men have no country we cannot take from them what they have not got since the proletariat must first of all acquire political supremacy must rise to be the leading class of the nation must constitute itself the nation it is so far itself national though not in the bourgeois sense of the word national differences and antagonism between peoples are daily more and more vanishing owing to the development of the bourgeoisie to freedom of commerce to the world market to uniformity in the mode of production and in the conditions of life corresponding thereto, the supremacy of the proletariat will cause them to vanish still faster united action of the leading civilized countries at least is one of the first conditions for the emancipation of the proletariat in proportion as the exploitation of one individual by another will also be put an end to the exploitation of one nation by another will also be put an end to in proportion as the antagonism between classes within the nation vanishes the hostility of one nation to another will come to an end the charges against communism made from a religious a philosophical and generally from an ideological standpoint are not deserving of serious examination Does it require deep intuition to comprehend that man's views, ideas, and conception, in one word, man's consciousness, changes with every change in the conditions of his material existence, in his social relations and in his social life? What else does the history of ideas prove than that intellectual production changes its character in proportion as material production has changed? The ruling ideas of each age have ever been the ideas of its ruling class." When people speak of the ideas that revolutionize society, they do but express that fact that within the old society, the elements of a new one have been created, and that the dissolution of the old ideas keeps even pace with the dissolution of the old conditions of existence. When the ancient world was in its last throes, the ancient religions were overcome by Christianity. When Christian ideas succumbed in the 18th century to rationalist ideas, feudal society fought its death battle, with the then revolutionary bourgeoisie the ideas of religious liberty and freedom of conscience merely gave expression to the sway of free competition within the domain of knowledge undoubtedly it will be said religious moral philosophical and juridical ideas have been modified in the course of historical development but religion morality philosophy political science and law constantly survived this change there are besides eternal truths such as freedom justice etc that are common to all states of society but communism abolishes eternal truths it abolishes all religion and all morality instead of constituting them on a new basis it therefore acts in contradiction to all past historical experience what does this accusation reduce itself to the history of all past society has consisted in the development of class antagonisms, antagonisms that assume different forms at different epochs. But whatever form they may have taken, one fact is common to all past ages, the exploitation of one part of society by the other. No wonder, then, that the social consciousness of past ages, despite all the multiplicity and variety it displays, moves within certain common forms or general ideas which cannot completely vanish except with the total disappearance of class antagonisms. The communist revolution is the most radical rupture with traditional property relations. No wonder that its development involved the most radical rupture with traditional ideas. But let us have done with the bourgeois objections to communism. We have seen above that the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class to win the battle of democracy. The proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest, by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie, to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e. of the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. Of course, in the beginning, this cannot be effected except by means of despotic inroads on the rights of property, and on the conditions of bourgeois production, by means of measures, therefore, which appear economically insufficient and untenable, but which, in the course of the movement, outstrip themselves, necessitate further inroads upon the social order, and are unavoidable as a means of entirely revolutionizing the mode of production. These measures will, of course, be different in different countries." Nevertheless, in most advanced countries, the following will be pretty generally applicable. One, abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Four, confiscation of the property of all emigrants and rebels. Five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. 6. Centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. 7. Extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. 8. Equal liability of all to work. Establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. 9. Combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries. Gradual abolition of all the distinction between town and country by a more equable distribution of the populace over the country. 10. Free education for all children in public schools. Abolition of children's factory labor in its present form. Combination of education with industrial production, etc., etc when in the course of development class distinctions have disappeared and all production has been concentrated in the hands of a vast association of the whole nation the public power will lose its political character political power properly so called is merely the organized power of one class for oppressing another if the proletariat during its contest with the bourgeoisie is compelled by the force of circumstances to organize itself as a class If, by means of a revolution, it makes itself the ruling class and, as such, sweeps away by force the old conditions of production, then it will, along with these conditions, have swept away the conditions for the existence of class antagonism and of class generally, and will thereby have abolished its own supremacy as a class." In place of the old bourgeois society with its classes and class antagonisms, we shall have an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. Section 3. Socialist and Communist Literature 1. Reactionary Socialism a. Feudal Socialism Owing to their historical position, it became the vocation of the aristocracies of France and England to write pamphlets against modern bourgeois society in the French Revolution of July 1830, and in the English reform agitation, these aristocracies again succumbed to the hateful upstart. Thenceforth, a serious political struggle was altogether out of the question. A literary battle alone remained possible. But even in the domain of literature, the old cries of the Restoration period had become impossible. In order to arouse sympathy, the aristocracy was obliged to lose sight, apparently, of its own interest and to formulate their indictment against the bourgeoisie in the interest of the exploited working class alone. Thus, the aristocracy took their revenge by singing lampoons on their new masters and whispering in his ears sinister prophecies of coming catastrophe. In this way, arose feudal socialism, half lamentation, half lampoon, half an echo of the past, half menace of the future at times by its bitter, witty, and incisive criticism striking the bourgeoisie to the very heart's core, but always ludicrous in its effect, through total incapacity to comprehend the march of modern history. The aristocracy, in order to rally the people to them, waved the proletarian alms bag in front for a banner. But the people, so often as it joined them, saw on their hindquarters the old feudal coats of arms and deserted with loud and irreverent laughter. One section of the French Legitimists and, quote, Young England exhibited this spectacle. In pointing out that their mode of exploitation was different to that of the bourgeoisie, the feudalists often forget that they exploited under circumstances and conditions that were quite different and that are now antiquated. In showing that, under their rule, the modern proletariat never existed. They forgot that the modern bourgeoisie is the necessary offspring of their own form of society. For the rest, so little do they conceal the reactionary character of their criticism that their chief accusation against the bourgeois amounts to this, that under the bourgeois regime, a class is being developed which is destined to cut up root and branch the old order of society. What they upbraid the bourgeoisie with is not so much that it creates a proletariat as that it creates a revolutionary proletariat. In political practice, therefore, they join in all coercive measures against the working class, and in ordinary life, despite their highfalutin phrases, they stoop to pick up the golden apples dropped from the tree of industry, and to barter truth, love, and honor for traffic in wool, beetroot sugar, and potato spirits. As the parson has ever gone hand-in-hand with the landlord, so has clerical socialism with feudal socialism. Nothing is easier than to give Christian asceticism a socialist tinge. Has not Christianity declaimed against private property, against marriage, against the state? Has it not preached in the place of these, charity and poverty, celibacy and mortification of the flesh, monastic life and mother church? Christian socialism is but the holy water with which the priest consecrates the heart burnings of the aristocrat. B. Petty bourgeois socialism. The feudal aristocracy was not the only class that was ruined by the bourgeoisie not the only class whose conditions of existence pined and perished in the atmosphere of modern bourgeois society the medieval burgesses and the small peasant proprietors were the precursors of the modern bourgeoisie in those countries which are still but little developed industrially and commercially these two classes still vegetate side by side with the rising bourgeoisie In countries where modern civilization has become fully developed, a new class of petty bourgeois has been formed, fluctuating between proletariat and bourgeoisie, and ever renewing itself as a supplemental part of bourgeois society. The individual members of this class, however, are being constantly hurled down into the proletariat by the action of competition. And as modern industry developed, they even see the moment approaching when they will completely disappear as an independent section of modern society to be replaced in manufactures, agriculture and commerce by overlookers, bailiffs and shopmen. In countries like France, where the peasants constitute far more than half of the population, it was natural that writers who sided with the proletariat against the bourgeoisie should use, in their criticism of the bourgeois regime, the standard of the peasant and petty bourgeois, and from the standpoint of these intermediate classes, should take up the cudgels for the working class. Thus arose petty bourgeois socialism. Sismondi was the head of this school, not only in France, but also in England. This school of socialism dissected with great acuteness the contradictions in the conditions of modern production. It laid bare the hypocritical apologies of economists. It proved, incontrovertibly, the disastrous effects of machinery and division of labor, the concentration of capital and land in a few hands, overproduction and crises. It pointed out the inevitable ruin of the petty bourgeois and peasant, the misery of the proletariat, the anarchy in production, the crying inequalities in the distribution of wealth, the industrial war of extermination between nations, the dissolution of old moral bonds, of the old family relations of the old nationalities. In its positive aims, however, this form of socialism aspires either to restoring the old means of production and of exchange, and with them the old property relations, and the old society, or to cramping the modern means of production and of exchange within the framework of the old property relations that have been and were bound to be exploded by those means. In either case, it is both reactionary and utopian. Its last words are, Corporate Guilds for Manufacture, Patriarchal Relations in Agriculture. Ultimately, when stubborn historical facts had dispensed in all intoxicating effects of self-deception, this form of socialism ended in a miserable fit of the blues. C. German or True Socialism The socialist and communist literature of France, a literature that originated under the pressure of a bourgeoisie in power, and that was the expressions of the struggle against this power, Was introduced into germany at a time when the bourgeoisie in that country had just begun its contest with feudal absolutism german philosophers would-be philosophers and beaux esprit men of letters eagerly seized on this literature only forgetting that when these writings immigrated from france into germany french social conditions had not immigrated along with them in contact with german social conditions this french literature lost all its immediate practical significance and assumed a purely literary aspect Thus, to the German philosophers of the 18th century, the demands of the first French Revolution were nothing more than the demands of, quote, practical reason in general, and the utterance of the will of the revolutionary French bourgeoisie signified, in their eyes, the laws of pure will, of will as it was bound to be, of true human will generally. The work of the German literati consisted solely in bringing the new French ideas into harmony with their ancient philosophical conscience or rather, in annexing the French ideas without deserting their own philosophic point of view. This annexation took place in the same way in which a foreign language is appropriated, namely by translation. It is well known how the monks wrote silly lives of Catholic saints over the manuscripts on which the classical works of ancient heathendom had been written. The German literati reversed this process with the profane French literature. They wrote their philosophical nonsense beneath the French original. For instance, beneath the French criticism of the economic functions of money, they wrote alienation of humanity. And beneath the French criticism of the bourgeois state, they wrote dethronement of the category of the general, and so forth. The introduction of these philosophical phrases at the back of the French historical criticisms, they dubbed philosophy of action, true socialism, German science of socialism, Philosophical foundation of socialism and so on The French socialist and communist literature was thus completely emasculated and Since it ceased in the hands of the German to express the struggle of one class with the other He felt conscious of having overcome quote French one-sidedness and of representing not true requirements But the requirements of truth not the interests of the proletariat, but the interests of human nature of man in general belongs to no class, has no reality, who exists only in the misty realm of philosophical fantasy. This German socialism, which took its schoolboy tasks so seriously and solemnly, and extolled its poor stock and trade in such a -a mountebank fashion, meanwhile gradually lost its pedantic innocence. The fight of the Germans, and especially of the Prussian bourgeoisie, against feudal aristocracy and absolute monarchy, in other words the liberal movement, became more earnest. By this, the long-wished-for opportunity was offered to true socialism of confronting the political movement with the socialist demands, of hurling the traditional anathemas against liberalism, against representative government, against bourgeois competition, bourgeois freedom of the press, bourgeois legislation, bourgeois liberty and equality, and of preaching to the masses that they had nothing to gain and everything to lose by this bourgeois movement. German socialism forgot, in the nick of time, that the French criticism whose silly echo it was presupposed in the existence of modern bourgeois society with its corresponding economic conditions of existence and the political constitution adapted thereto, the very things those attainment was the object of the pending struggle in Germany. To the absolute governments, with their following of parsons, professors, country squires and officials, it served as a welcome scarecrow against the threatening bourgeoisie. It was a sweet finish after the bitter pills of flogging and bullets with which these same governments, just at that time, dosed the German working class risings. While this, quote, true socialism, thus served the government as a weapon for fighting the German bourgeoisie, it at the same time directly represented a reactionary interest, the interest of German philistines. In Germany, the petty bourgeois class, a relic of the 16th century, and since then constantly cropping up again under the various forms, is the real social basis of the existing state of things. To preserve this class is to preserve the existing state of things in Germany. The industrial and political supremacy of the bourgeoisie threatens it with certain destruction, on the one hand from the concentration of capital, on the other from the rise of a revolutionary proletariat. True socialism appeared to kill these two birds with one stone. It spread like an epidemic. The robe of speculative cobwebs embroidered with flowers of rhetoric steeped in the dew of sickly sentiment This transcendental robe in which the German socialists wrapped their sorry eternal truths all skin and bone served to wonderfully increase the sale of their goods amongst such a public and on its part German socialism recognized more and more its own calling as the bombastic representative of the petty bourgeois philistine It proclaimed the German nation to be the model nation and the german petty philistine to be the typical man to every villainous meanness of this model man it gave a hidden higher socialistic interpretation the exact contrary of its real character it went to the extreme length of directly opposing the quote brutally destructive tendency of communism and of proclaiming its supreme and impartial contempt of all class struggles with very few exceptions All the so-called socialist and communist publications that now, in 1847, circulate in Germany belong to this domain of foul and enervating literature. 2. Conservative or Bourgeois Socialism A part of the bourgeoisie is desirous of redressing social grievances in order to secure the continued existence of bourgeois society. To this section belong economists, philanthropists, humanitarians, improvers of the condition of the working class, organizers of charity, members of societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals, temperance fanatics, hole and corner reformers of every imaginable kind. This form of socialism has, moreover, been worked out into complete systems. We may cite Proudhon's Philosophie de la Misere as an example of this form. The socialistic bourgeois want all the advantages of modern social conditions without the struggles and dangers necessarily resulting therefrom. They desire the existing state of society, minus its revolutionary and disintegrating elements. They wish for a bourgeoisie without a proletariat. The bourgeoisie naturally conceives the world in which it is supreme to be the best, and bourgeois socialism develops this comfortable conception into various more or less complete systems in requiring the proletariat to carry out such a system, and thereby to march straightway into the social New Jerusalem. It but requires in reality that the proletariat should remain within the bounds of existing society, but should cast away all its hateful ideas concerning the bourgeoisie." A second and more practical, but less systematic, form of this socialism sought to depreciate every revolutionary movement in the eyes of the working class, By showing that no mere political reform, but only a change in the material conditions of existence, in economical relations, could be of any advantage to them. By changes in the material conditions of existence, this form of socialism, however, by no means understands abolition of the bourgeois relations of production. An abolition that can be effected only by a revolution, but administrative reforms, based on the continued existence of these relations. Reforms, therefore, that in no respect affect the relations between capital and labor, but at the best, lessen the cost and simplify the administrative work of bourgeois government. Bourgeois socialism attains adequate expression when, and only when, it becomes a mere figure of speech. Free trade for the benefit of the working class. Protective duties for the benefit of the working class. Prison reform for the benefit of the working class. This is the last word and the only seriously meant word of bourgeois socialism. It is summed up in the phrase, the bourgeois is a bourgeois for the benefit of the working class. Three, critical utopian socialism and communism. We do not here refer to that literature, which in every great modern revolution has always given voice to the demands of the proletariat, such as the writings of Babeuf and others the first direct attempts of the proletariat to attain its own ends made in times of universal excitement when feudal society was being overthrown necessarily failed owing to the then underdeveloped state of the proletariat as well as to the absence of the economic conditions for its emancipation conditions that had yet to be produced and could be produced by the impending bourgeois epoch alone the revolutionary literature that accompanied these first movements of the proletariat had necessarily a reactionary character It inculcated universal asceticism and social leveling in its crudest form. The socialist and communist systems, properly so called, those of Saint-Simon, Fourier, Owen, and others, spring into existence in in the early undeveloped period, described above, of the struggle between proletariat and bourgeoisie, see Section 1, Bourgeois and Proletarians. The founders of these systems see, indeed, the class antagonisms, as well as the action of the decomposing elements in the prevailing form of society. But the proletariat, as yet in its infancy, offers to them the spectacle of a class without any historical initiative or any independent political movement since the development of class antagonism keeps even pace with the development of industry the economic situation as they find it does not as yet offer to them the material conditions for the emancipation of the proletariat they therefore search after a new social science after new social laws that are able to create these conditions historical action is to yield to their personal inventive action historically created conditions of emancipation to fantastic ones and the gradual spontaneous class organization of the proletariat to an organization of society especially contrived by these investors future history resolves itself in their eyes into the propaganda and the practical carrying out of their social plans in the formation of their plans they are conscious of caring chiefly for the interests of the working class as being the most suffering class Only from the point of view of being the most suffering class does the proletariat exist for them. The undeveloped state of the class struggle, as well as their own surroundings, causes socialists of this kind to consider themselves far superior to all class antagonisms. They want to improve the condition of every member of society, even that of the most favored. Hence, they habitually appeal to society at large, without the distinction of class, nay, by preference to the ruling class, for how can people, when once they understand their system, fail to see it in the best possible plan of the best possible state of society. Hence, they reject all political and especially all revolutionary action. They wish to attain their end by peaceful means, necessarily doomed to failure, and by the force of example, to pave the way for the new social gospel. Such fantastic pictures of future society, painted at a time when the proletariat is still in a very underdeveloped state, and has but a fantastic conception of its own position correspond with the first instinctive yearnings of that class for a general reconstruction of society but these socialist and communist publications also contain a critical element they attack every principle of existing society hence they are full of the most valuable materials for the enlightenment of the working class the practical measures proposed in them such as the abolition of the distinction between town and country of the family of the carrying on of industries for the account of private individuals, and of the wage system, the proclamation of social harmony, the conversion of the function of the state into a mere superintendence of production, all these proposals point solely to the disappearance of class antagonisms which were, at that time, only just cropping up, and which in these publications are recognized in their earliest indistinct and undefined forms only. These proposals, therefore, are of a purely utopian character, The significance of critical utopian socialism and communism bears an inverse relation to historical development. In proportion as the modern class struggle develops and takes definite shape, this fantastic standing apart from the contest, these fantastic attacks on it, lose all practical value and all theoretical justification. Therefore, although the originators of these systems were, in many respects, revolutionary, their disciples have in every case formed mere reactionary sects. They hold fast by the original views of their masters, in opposition to the progressive historical development of the proletariat. They therefore endeavor, and that consistently, to deaden the class struggle and to reconcile the class antagonisms. They still dream of experimental realization of their social utopias, of founding isolated phalansters, of establishing home colonies, or setting up a little Icaria, duodecimo editions of the New Jerusalem and to realize that all these castles in the air are compelled to appeal to the feelings and purses of the bourgeois. By degrees, they sink into the category of the reactionary or conservative socialists depicted above, differing from these only by more systematic pedantry, and by their fanatical and superstitious belief in the miraculous effects of their social science. They therefore violently oppose all political action on the part of the working class such action according to them can only result from blind unbelief in the new gospel the owenites in england and the Fourierists in france respectively oppose the chartists and the reformist section 4 position of the communists in relation to the various existing opposition parties section 2 has made clear the relations of the communists to the existing working class parties such as the chartists in england And the agrarian reformers in america the communists fight for the attainment of the immediate aims for the enforcement of the momentary interests of the working class but in the movement of the present they also represent and take care of the future of that movement in france the communists ally with the social democrats against the conservative and radical bourgeoisie reserving however the right to take up a critical position in regard to phases and illusions traditionally handed down from the great revolution In Switzerland, they support the radicals without losing sight of the fact that this party consists of antagonistic elements, partly of democratic socialists in the French sense, partly of radical bourgeois. In Poland, they support the party that insists on an agrarian revolution as the prime condition for national emancipation, that party which fomented the insurrection of Krakow in 1846. In Germany, they fight with the bourgeoisie whenever it acts in a revolutionary way against the absolute monarchy, the feudal squirearchy, and the petty bourgeoisie. But they never cease for a single instant to instill into the working class the clearest possible recognition of the hostile antagonism between bourgeoisie and proletariat. In order that the German workers may straightaway use, as so many weapons against the bourgeoisie, the social and political conditions that the bourgeoisie must necessarily introduce along with its supremacy. And in order that, after the fall of the reactionary classes in Germany, the fight against the bourgeoisie itself may immediately begin." the communists turn their attention chiefly to germany because that country is on the eve of a bourgeois revolution that is bound to be carried out under more advanced conditions of european civilization and with a much more developed proletariat than that of england was in the 17th and france in the 18th century and because the bourgeois revolution in germany will be but the prelude to an immediately following proletarian revolution In short, the communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. In all these movements, they bring to the front, as the leading question in each, the property question, no matter what its degree of development at the time. Finally, they labor everywhere for the union and agreement of the democratic parties of all countries. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. So this ends the audiobook recording of Manifesto of the Communist Party, also known as the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. I hope that you have found it useful. Um, I may be doing some segments breaking this down in greater detail in the coming weeks because it's just so relevant, Um, particularly all the sections about crises and electoral politics as the United States right now is facing, uh, well, the world is facing a major um, plague from the coronavirus, and it seems like world capitalism is breaking down again as it did in 2008 And also the United States is facing a uh, political election, possibly involving the emergence of some proletarian interests in Bernie Sanders. Although, which form of socialism does Bernie Sanders represent? Uh, Maybe we can do a breakdown of his uh, political platform and analyze it against the various types of socialism uh, as laid out in the Communist Manifesto. Thanks for listening again. Please make sure to like, share, subscribe, comment. Follow us at facebook.com slash socialismforall. Become a patron at patreon.com slash socialismforall. You can support for as little as a dollar a month. Thanks again.